But over the next few moments, I want to consider this, what's often called the parable of the tenants, or the parable of the servants, those who are taking care of this land in the parable. And we'll see it in four parts. First of all, Jesus sets up the story, sets up uh, what's going on there with the vineyard. And then secondly, we see the ultimate affront or crime that those servants running the vineyard um, commit against the landlord. And then the lesson that Jesus gives. And Jesus does this in a unique way that we'll see, which gets the religious leaders he's actually talking to and about whom he's speaking in the parable, he gets them to jump in and give the final verdict, even though they don't realize they're actually um, pronouncing the judgment on themselves. And then finally, we'll see the application and confrontation. But it's important to remember that even in this chapter, this is the second parable that highlights the sin of the Jewish people and of the religious leaders as a whole and how they are destroying themselves through this sin and that uh, they've placed themselves in a terrible position before the God that they claim that they're worshiping. So let's see how this is set up in verses 33 to 36. Once again, he says, listen, this is important. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, built the watchtower, Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect the fruit. But of course, the tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them in the same way. So Jesus begins by encouraging the religious leaders that he's talking with, and this is a public confrontation. He encourages them to listen carefully. A point is going to be made through this story that they really need to hear. Now, in Isaiah chapter 5, he's, the, the passage there, which was written more than 600 years before Jesus was speaking this parable, it uses the same terminology. So what Jesus is doing here is he's not coming up with a whole new story. He's not coming up with a new parable that's teaching a spiritual truth as much as he is playing on an old story that they already knew but he's trying to bring the point home to them in a way hopefully they'll understand it. Now once again, he says, Israel is producing bad fruit and is going to be judged for it. That's the purpose of Isaiah chapter 5, written 600 years before. It was all about how the Jewish people, even though they had this unique relationship with God, they had the law of God, they had the word of God, they were not living up to it. They were constantly disobeying him, constantly rebelling. And so in Isaiah chapter 5, a, a bit of pro, a, a pronouncement of judgment is made upon them. And now Jesus says that same sort of judgment is coming, but it's going to be worse this time, he tells us. But notice some of the, the similarities between these two passages. Both of them uh, speak about making sure that the vineyard is uh, optimally run. That is, the, the landowner, what does he do? Well, he builds a fence to keep the wild animals out. He builds a tower so that uh, some of the servants can make sure they have a a high vantage point, an outlook so that any intruders they can spot before they come in. And also the tower would serve as a bit of shelter for the workers as well. He he digs the wine press. That is, this is going to be the place um, where the the, uh, grapes, once they're uh, collected, they're going to be able to be trodden and the the grape juice is going to be able to come out. And uh, what you would do is you you would dig a spot in the earth you would line it with a particular type of stones and then you would plaster it over because uh, you, of course, don't want any cracks or any, or any holes uh, so that you don't lose some of that grape juice. That's precious stuff. 
And so he's done everything. He's put in every effort possible to make this vineyard a success. Now the thing about vineyards is they don't immediately become a success, even if you have good fortune with them. Uh, that is, in, uh, in the United States, in the Napa Valley, where um, a lot of grapes and wine is produced, there's a saying um, that a vineyard, purchasing of a vineyard and running a vineyard can make you a small fortune. But in order to make the small fortune, you first must have a large fortune. Because it costs so much to purchase a vineyard, so much to run it, especially if you're starting from scratch. And that's what this vineyard owner is doing. He's starting from scratch. He's done everything. He, he's put all the upfront costs. He's, he's put everything in place to make it a success. But you don't actually get any fruit, any fruit worth mentioning at least, from a vineyard until the fifth year. It takes five years. So he needs these tenants to be working the land, doing what they're supposed to do, making sure they're, they're cultivating the vines properly. But it's not going to be until year five before he gets anything out of it. And this is really important to understand because of what's about to come. He's done everything to make it profitable and fruitful. But now, not only has the owner subsidized these four years, but now the time of harvest, the fifth year, comes. In verses 34 and 35, the fifth year is here. He sends some servants to go collect some of the fruit. A landowner in this situation, living in a different place, he would send his servants to collect some of the fruit, some of the, the produce, uh, and he could collect up to 50%. Usually, especially in like year five, which is the first year, you wouldn't get a full crop. And so it, it would usually just be a token amount. Like, as an acknowledgement, yes, you're the landowner, you're the landlord, here's some of the, the fruit of the labor and all the time and energy and effort you put into this land over multiple years. And now you're starting to see some of the payback. It, but the situation here with the, the tenants is that, what do they do? They seize some of the servants, they beat some of them, they kill one, and then they stone to death another. This would be a little bit like, only a little bit like, uh, you or I having an investment property here in the city. And we rent that investment property out, hoping to make a little bit of money on it, of course, to pay the bills, pay the mortgage, whatever it is. And the problem, though, becomes the renters don't pay any rent. You never get any rent out of them for five years. And every time the real estate agent goes to inspect the property, they chase them away and throw things at them. Well, of course, there's a huge problem here, but that's, that's only a tiny picture of what's going on here. The opposition grows in intensity over time, we see. And then verse 36, they're now killing the unarmed messengers. Now, if, if this had been a Roman landlord, a Roman owner of the vineyard, and the Romans were in charge at that time, the first time this happened, the Roman official would have taken or would have uh, petitioned the government to send a battalion of Roman soldiers. They would have taken every single one of those servants running the farm and they would have thrown them into slavery for the rest of their life. So what's going on here? Well, the landowner is not doing that. It's as if the landowner is going to great pains and putting himself at great risk, at least financially speaking, and putting his own servants at great risk for the sake of being as patient and as understanding and as loving and as compassionate as he possibly can be. Now, of course, in real life, if, if, if Jesus were telling this parable uh, in real life, and of course he did at one point in history, but the, the religious leaders and those hearing it would say, like, this is weird. This isn't a normal way that things operate. 
And this parable isn't meant to represent how things would normally operate back then. But it's taking this illustration, it's embellishing it, and making a point out of it. So yes, no landlord in Palestine at that time would have acted in this way and given years of patience and understanding and allowed these individuals to beat up his servants or what comes next. But Jesus is making a point because this is an allegorical parable. That is, every part of this parable has a spiritual truth behind it. And we'll see how that works. But his many warnings over a period of time, his, his going to get the fruit that was justly his right to get as the landowner, shows his patience and his love and his long-serving nature. But now let's look at the ultimate affront or crime, verses 37 to 40. Last of all, he sends his son to them. They'll respect my son, he said. But, of course, we know they don't. When the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Take his inheritance. And so they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and then killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? You see, the son represents the father. And in that day and age, the, the, the grown son in the family would have the full authority and weight of the father behind him. And so, in essence, the landowner could have come himself, but he's doing the exact same thing by sending his son. And anybody in their right mind, any tenant or servant running the land in their right mind, would acknowledge the son and would respond appropriately. But of course they don't. They don't show respect. And, and maybe the idea is something a little bit like this. Well, the, the people running the, the vineyard there, they're servants. And the landowner up to this point has sent other servants to go collect some of the fruit. And so servants may beat up on other servants, but surely they're not going to try to go and attack the master of the house and his son. And yet, of course, that's exactly what they do. And so they say, if we kill the son, then we can own the land. Which shows a, a really twisted way of thinking. In no scenario in the ancient world would that ever be okay. In no way, shape, or form by killing the son would they ever become owners of the land themselves. As if the master of that land would allow his son to be killed and then say, eh, all right, you guys just have it. It's no big deal. No, that would never happen. So there's no scenario here, if they're thinking in their right mind, where they're going to get the land. But this is to illustrate for us how sin always causes us to think improperly or illogically. It always causes us to be muddled in our mind. Sin in our hearts, which shows itself in our actions, and it certainly shows itself in the actions of these individuals, will always mess up our thinking. Now here's where we have to start understanding what the bits and pieces of this vineyard and this parable represent. Now notice a couple things here. First of all, it says something very interesting. It says uh, that they want to throw the son outside the vineyard and then kill him. This is a dead giveaway to what Jesus is trying to say. Because in this parable, the landowner is God. The tenant farmers are the religious leaders, especially. The vineyard itself is Jerusalem and the land of Israel. And the son is Jesus. Now, Jesus is giving us a, a very clear hint, and in, in just a moment he's going to tell us verbatim exactly what this means and the intention of it, and the religious leaders are going to understand. But he, he puts a jab, a sarcastic jab, at the religious leaders within the story. Because what do the tenant farmers, who are representing the religious leaders, do? When the son comes, they make sure that as he comes into the vineyard to get the, the fruit, they first kick him out and throw him outside of the vineyard to kill him. 
That's really important because in the Jewish way of reckoning with their civil uh, laws in the Old Testament that God had given them in their ceremonial laws, if you were to shed blood, murder someone within the vineyard, then the entire crop, all the fruit that comes from the crop that year is unclean and you can't sell it to another Jew. So you've just destroyed the whole financial output of the vineyard for that season. And so what do these individuals do? Oh, we've got to follow the law of the Lord. We've got to follow what God has told us. We can't be shedding blood inside the vineyard, so we'll, we'll throw him outside of the vineyard and then we'll kill him. Never mind the fact that we're actually committing murder, which is directly opposed to one of God's primary commands in the Old Testament. We're going to make sure that we follow the law of the Lord in this other area because we want to make sure we get the money. And this is exactly what the religious leaders did. It is exactly the way that Jesus responds to the religious leaders time and time again. He says, you, you think you're following the law of the Lord, but you're not. You're following formalism. You're following religion. You're following man-made traditions. But you have no heart for God. And it's shown by the fact that in a few days' time, they will kill Jesus who has done nothing wrong. They're happy to commit murder, but they make sure they do it in just the right way so that they're not spiritually unclean. As if somehow you can murder someone and God's okay with that. This is their hypocrisy on center stage. But notice also, he, he uses this phrase, Lord of the Vineyard, at verse 40. Now, if the Lord of the vineyard is God the Father, and it is, and the vineyard is representing Jerusalem or Israel, we could restate that phrase or the meaning of that phrase as God the Father of Israel or Jerusalem. That's what he's getting at. And he says that he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. I, I like that translation. And that's exactly what's going on here. He will come in judgment of the people who killed his son, as well as scorned and mocked and killed his prophets, and those in the Old Testament that he had sent to the Jewish people time and time again. And then he will give it to other tenant farmers who will actually produce the fruit and give him a portion of it, as is only appropriate. And so with this declaration, and interestingly, uh, we see it in verse 40. He asked, he asked it in the form of a question. And essentially what he does is he allows the religious leaders to give the punchline to the story. What should be done to these tenant farmers who treat the servants of the landowner in this way and then kill the son? What should be done to them? How about you tell us? You tell us, religious leaders. You're the one who knows the law of God so well. Why don't you pronounce judgment? You get to be the judges. You get to pronounce the verdict. Go ahead. And they do, not realizing that they've just pronounced their own judgment and the verdict of their own damnation. Verse 41. They're the ones who say he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the, vi the vineyard to other tenants. He will give it out to others who will give his share of the crop at harvest time. And Jesus says, essentially, yes, you're exactly right. But here's the lesson, starting in verse 41 and 42. Then Jesus goes on and says, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or the capstone? The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. He quotes from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. Now, every Jewish person, and this is essential to understand to get the sort of punchline of what Jesus is going for here. Every Jewish individual from the time that they were a small toddler would have had this entire chapter of the Bible memorized. Because as you and your family went up to Jerusalem for Passover, this is one of the Psalms in the Old Testament, one of the chapters of the Old Testament that you would chant or sing as you went up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. 
So every single Jewish individual knew this psalm by heart. So the religious leaders certainly knew this. But what does Jesus say? This is the second time he's done this in this chapter. Haven't you read? Come on, religious leaders. You're supposed to be leading the people. You're supposed to know the Word of God. Didn't you even read this chapter, guys? Now, he had just said that to them not too long ago about the same chapter of Scripture. Because you remember when the, when the people were um, welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, what were they saying? Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the children are saying something similar on the Temple Mount. And the religious leaders are very upset about it. And Jesus once again says, guys, haven't you read the Bible? Don't, don't you know what God said? Well, those same verses about Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and that pronouncement that was made earlier on in this chapter, those are just a couple verses later in Psalm 118. So it's as if Jesus is for the second time saying, guys, you didn't read this? We already talked about this. I gave you plenty of time to go back and read it. Even though you should have had it memorized as a child, and you do. But you have no clue what the meaning is. That's the point. These religious leaders are leading the people, but as Jesus says elsewhere, they're blind leaders of the blind, and both are going to fall into the ditch. They have no idea what the law of God, what the Word of God means when they read it. They twist it for their own means. And now we see the great reversal that God is saying through Jesus His Son that God's people, by rejecting the Son, are going to have many of the privileges and the blessings of being God's people taken away from them and given to another group of people. Because they've rejected Him, God is choosing to build a new building with this chief cornerstone, Jesus. But it's going to be built with a different group of people. This is exactly the reversal that Mary sings about when she knows that she's about to give birth to Jesus in Luke chapter 1, which we saw at Christmas time. But now... More briefly, the application and the confrontation, verses 43 to 46, as all of this comes together. Verse 43, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And then, and only then, verse 45, do the chief priests and the Pharisees who hear Jesus and heard this parable Only then did the religious leaders understand that he's actually talking about them. The pronouncement of judgment that they make on themselves without knowing it is is one of the most devastating moments in the whole of the New Testament. There's going to be an even more tragic one um, in just a few short verses. And yet, this is devastating. Jesus is acting like an Old Testament prophet. He gives a parable to teach a lesson, and in so doing, he causes the religious leaders to condemn themselves in front of everyone. And so then, when the judgment comes, they can't claim, God, this is unfair. No, you're you're wrong, God. No, we don't deserve this, because they're the ones who pronounce their own judgment. I love how Charles Spurgeon the old Baptist preacher in London many years ago said um, this about verse 44. He said, Those who stumble over Christ, the chief cornerstone of the church, are injured and they suffer grievous bruising and breaking. But He, Jesus, the cornerstone, remains unhurt. Opposition to Jesus is always injury to ourselves. Let me say that part again. Opposition to Jesus is always injury to ourselves. Those upon whom He, Jesus, falls in wrath are ground to powder. For the results of his anger are overwhelming and fatal and irretrievable. 
Oppose him and you suffer. But when he arises in might and chooses to oppose you ultimately, destruction will come upon you and it will be eternal. Now the leaders of the nation of Israel will share in the judgment of God that God originally brought about on his people and on Babylon who took them away into exile. That's, that's what Isaiah chapter 5 was talking about. And now God says, essentially, the Jewish people, you have become Babylon, my hated enemy. You become the very people that were your enemies at one time and are the enemies of God, and he will utterly destroy you because of it. And so this brings us to four conclusions and three applications. First of all, the death of the Son of God will happen at the hands of the people of Israel. The death of the Son of God, Jesus, is going to happen, and it's going to be the primary responsibility, at least humanly speaking, of the Jewish people. Secondly, the leaders and the nation are guilty. Why are they guilty? They're guilty for rejecting and mistreating and then choosing to kill, first, all the prophets and the messengers that God sent them in the Old Testament. And now they're showing that rebellion again by killing the ultimate one, God in human form, Jesus, the Messiah. And then thirdly, the judgment and the sentence on Israel and its leaders for turning against God and rejecting Him in this way and rejecting His representatives, it's going to be terrible. The judgment's going to be terrible and it's going to be eternal. There's no coming back from it. For those religious leaders who are standing there, this is yet another moment where they show how hardened their hearts are against God. God's redemptive activity is now to be transferred to a, a new movement, a new group, which we understand later in the New Testament is the church. So I want to be really clear on that point, though. Uh, the group will be made up. That is the, this new group that God's going to work in and through. He's no longer going to work primarily in and through the Jewish nation as a whole like he did in the Old Testament. Now he's going to work through a new group which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. But this doesn't mean that God has ultimately rejected the Jewish people or that he has no plan for them. We find in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 that there is a plan for them. We find it in Revelation. So he has not completely cast off the Jewish people. But he says, I'm going to, from a human perspective, do a new thing with a new group but for the same reason that I used the Jewish people in the Old Testament. Because you remember the promise to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation was, through you and through what I do with you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so this was always part of the plan of God, but the Jewish people didn't understand it. And until God fully revealed it, none of us could have understood it either. And so the church, or the, the Gentile believers, we don't replace Israel. God still has a purpose for his people, the Jewish nation. By the way, the Old Testament Jewish nation is very different than the, the modern New Testament, uh, the modern nation of Israel in Palestine. So those, those aren't the same thing. But he still has a plan for his Jewish people. But the true Israel are the people who are going to follow God and produce the fruits that he told them to produce. And so we have this dynamic in the Old Testament where not, th this is the confusing dynamic, so follow me on this. Not every biological Jew is a spiritual Jew in the Old Testament. Not all of ethnic Israel is true Israel in the Old Testament. And this is why in the Old Testament this word remnant is used over and over again. God is saying within the, the millions of Jewish people who have ever lived, only a subset of those biological Jews have actually been faithful, God-fearing, God-worshipping individuals, have been true spiritual Jews. And that's what God actually wants. It's not about your biology or your genetic line. That doesn't do anything. As, as Jesus says elsewhere, 
Um, God can raise up children in Abraham's line from, from rocks on the side of the road. He, he doesn't need our biology and our family tree. That's not the point. The point was always to work through a, a certain group of people to show his mercy and his love to the world. And in so doing, there was only ever a, a small remnant of faithful Jewish people. And now what's happened is the Gentiles are now allowed to join in with that faithful remnant. And now the church is both Jew and Gentile. All the peoples of the world are invited. You don't have to become Jewish first. You don't have to move to the land of Israel first. You can come to God the Father through Christ. And even to this day, by God's grace, there is still a faithful remnant of Jewish people. They often call themselves Messianic Jews. That is, biologically Jewish individuals who have chosen to trust in Christ as their Messiah, as they should, as He told them to. But now is what's called the time of the Gentiles, or sometimes called the church age, in which God is working in a different way from our vantage point than the way he did in the Old Testament. And this is a glorious and confronting truth, and it leads to three applications. First off, if you claim to be a Christian, then the question is, are you producing the fruits of the kingdom of God? Are you producing Christian fruits? Because remember that fig tree a few weeks ago we looked at? It looked good from a distance, but it had no fruit on it. And so it was condemned. We, a person can look good religiously from a distance, but if there's nothing actually in the heart, no heart change, and heart change is something only Jesus can bring, if there's no heart change, then you're going to be condemned. That hypocrisy is always condemned by God. But secondly, like, like the general at the head of a great army, Jesus stands at the head of the most powerful army the world has ever seen. And the religious leaders didn't understand this in his day because Jesus seemed to be a, a mild-mannered individual in many respects, but he was actually standing at the head of the greatest army in human history, and he still does. And he bids citizens of all the nations of the world to come to him. Stop your rebellion against the God who made you. If you will come and turn to me and turn your allegiance over to me, then you will be saved. Otherwise, if you continue in your rebellion and rejection of me, you will be condemned and crushed. And the Jewish leaders and the majority of the nation of Israel at that time chose to continue in their rejection and they were crushed. But that leads us now to consider it from our own frame of reference because it's actually the same message to us. What is your decision? How do you respond to Jesus? How will you respond to Jesus? Notice, by the way, this isn't Jesus just acting or lashing out out of anger. This only came after God, the landowner, the one who owns it all because he's the creator of it all, this, this judgment, this pr- harsh pronouncement of judgment by Jesus only comes after more than a thousand years of God sending one prophet after the other, one priest after the other, one king after the other, one messenger after the other, giving them his word, telling them exactly what he wanted from them, exactly how they were supposed to respond to, them, re- respond to him. A thousand years of love and mercy and patience and long-suffering even though they kept killing and beating all of the people he sent to them. And now he comes himself as Jesus, knowing full well, even as he pronounces this, in just a few short hours, they'll betray him and kill him too. That's why their judgment is coming. It's perfectly deserved, and actually it's long overdue. But God is so gracious and patient. And this leads us to the last application, which is this. To use that same illustration of the cornerstone that Jesus used. If you, as an individual, 
fall on Jesus. That is, you trip over Jesus, so to speak, the cornerstone. Then you'll be broken. But let me say it this way. God can bring healing in that situation. If you are confronted by Jesus and and it really shakes you to your foundation, you're broken over Him, the chief cornerstone, then you can have healing in that particular instance. In fact, in order for anyone to to join the ranks of Jesus, they have to first be broken. They have to come to the end of themselves. They have to realize their need. They have to ask God's help and respond to Him and give up their rebellious ways and ask Him for His forgiveness and His mercy. But, and here's the second option, if you have Jesus, the chief cornerstone, fall on you when He comes to judge the world, and He is coming back to judge the world, then at that point, there is no more mercy. There is no more patience. There is no more love. The time is up, and you will be crushed eternally. That's a sobering truth. So what will you do with Jesus, the chief cornerstone? Because that's, that's the real question. And there's only two options. No one can sit on the fence. Will you reject him as the religious leaders did, as well as many other people in their day and all the way up to the present day? Or will you, yes, initially stumble over him, but then seek his pardon, ask for his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness, and join him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and his army? One way, and only one way, leads to life and the other leads to eternal death. Which will you choose? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. This is a sobering passage. And we acknowledge that we naturally go astray from your ways. Even when we know something that is right to do, we often fail to do it. This is the problem with humanity. Our sin and our rebellion against You has caused us to twist everything. Sometimes we try to hide it like the religious leaders by being hypocrites and putting on a bunch of formal religious traditions, but You see right through that as You did with them. Oh God, I pray that You would help us to really evaluate in this moment. Do we know You? Not do we know about You, but do we actually know You? Have we received Your forgiveness and Your mercy and Your grace? Or are we just acting with religious tradition? Or maybe we haven't even tried to go to the effort of acting with that hypocritical tradition. We just don't respond to You at all. We don't live in light of You at all. We just ignore Your existence. Lord, I can't see any heart, but You can. I ask for those who perhaps for the first time are being confronted by this choice and who Jesus is, I pray that they will stumble over you in the best sense of the term and that they will come to the end of themselves, stop relying on themselves, and that they will humble themselves before you and ask your forgiveness and your pardon and that they can be saved and join the ranks of Jesus. For anyone who's in that second category, Lord, I ask that you would help them to receive this as a very significant warning. You are giving them the same grace and patience and love and long-suffering that you gave to the Jewish people. Help them not to throw it away like so many others have done so that they will not be destroyed on Judgment Day. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, the cornerstone, 
God in human form, our great Savior and Lord. Amen.